Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Hey, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? How's your week? Uh, my week was pretty good. It was productive. Um, but I have to say, I'm I'm so disappointed in myself. Oh, why? Ty, so after that cruise, I told myself, I'm like, girl, you're going to be on a detox. You're going to eat good all week. You're going to get your steps in. Child, you might as well have thought that I was still on that cruise the way I ate. <laughs> it's just, I, I have no self-control right now. <laughs> It's like that sometimes. Uh, it's just every once in a while, you just kind of just let yourself go. Just let it go. Just eat what you want. Enjoy it. Splurge. <laughs> <laughs> you feel bad about it. You, you didn't get back in the gear. But, you know, I think that's fine sometimes, you know. But it's that's okay. exactly how I feel. Like, I just let it go. Like, it's about to be summertime. I'm pretty sure there are so many clothes in my closet that I cannot fit right now. So that's why I need to get it together. <laughs> yeah. And then I feel bad because at the end of the week, at the end of this upcoming week, I have a a, like a appointment with like an insurance person. You know, they do like a physical and stuff like that. I'm like, I should be in tip top shape. I'm trying to get some life insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you're trying to get it for the low low. (laughs) Yeah, right. See, don't be like me, y'all. That's too funny. But yeah, I mean, I, I I guess I've been eating okay. I've been eating as as good as I would like to ever since I came back from Atlanta. You know, but I kind of been like a hybrid, like some healthy, but then I'll splurge on something else. But yeah, I need to, I need to tighten up too. Yeah. Need to tighten up too. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. Well, I'll let y'all know how it go next week. So yeah, I, I don't have high hopes for the week, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as long as you're conscious of it, you know, you're not gonna let yourself go too much. Summer is here, right around the right around the corner. I know, I know. We gotta uh, get it together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for me, this is the last week of class. Well, this is finals week, so this is my official final week of the semester. Yay! Uh, so yeah, I plan to kind of take, you know, these next couple weeks easy, chill, and then, uh, you know, first week of June, get back into my grind. But, you know, I just need to decompress a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I am. So the graduation for uh, the school that I'm conducting research in is this upcoming Saturday and you know then there'll be a couple days left for like the underclassmen but after that you know things kind of lit well they don't lighten up because I really get into the grind of writing but it's a different type of grind because I'm not constantly moving around moving around yeah mm -hmm. that's good so yeah I guess we'll both be writing over the summer because I got a lot of projects I got to start writing up too yeah getting together so it's gonna be a writing summer I know we might need to start a little BHD writing group. Yeah, we probably do, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) So I could be held accountable. Some accountability, you know? Because it's summers with no classes, no teacher, you know what I mean? I just got to write. I'll be like, ah, I'll get to it later. Then just be watching reruns or something or some binge watching some show on Netflix instead. That has happened to me so many times. And I'm like, wait, it's the end of July already? (laughs) That's the thing about the summer. You think you have time and you look up and you're like, oh, I got a month left. 
Oh, no, what have I been doing? So I'm going to definitely try to like be on it early and then maybe I can relax towards the end of the summer, vice versa. Then yeah. Crunch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So we got some old Lord news ready? Of course we do. All right. Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so this first Oh Lord news story, it, it just really bothered my soul. So early last Friday morning, a citizen named Natasha Tynes boarded a DC train, you know, on her way to work. She happened to see a uh, Metro uh, transit worker in her uniform eating breakfast, minding her own business. This woman decides to not only tell the lady, hey, you're not supposed to eat on the train, which the the worker responded like, my own business. So I guess that must have like ticked her off because not only she took a picture and then tagged the lady uh, or tagged the DC Metro Twitter handle to say, hey, I thought we weren't supposed to eat on trains. Look at this worker eating on the train. And then, so the DC Metro followed up to say, like, what time was this? What, you know, what train were you on? Which way were you going? The lady, you know, pretty much just like snitched, like said it all with this lady's picture up to get her fired. But what she didn't know was that Twitter wasn't going to have it. And (laughs) yes, so people were like, because what's crazy is this lady is a woman of color and she often like talks about and advocates uh, about like women of color in writing and how she has such a, you know, difficult time in writing because of her status as a woman of color. And it's kind of like, well, look at you wielding your power against another woman of color and she just want to eat her breakfast. So people start going in on her and she was supposed to have a book that was coming out and her distributor said, we not here for this. <laughs> we will not be distributing your book because oh. what you did was unnecessary. <laughs> See, that's why sometimes people just got to mind their own business, man. Why are you going to extra limbs because somebody just eating on a train? Well, is it that serious? And the thing is, so people, you know, were like responding to the tweet was like, I ride the same train as you every single morning and I always have my Starbucks coffee or I always have this and, mm-hmm. you know, nobody has ever said anything to me. Now, of course, you aren't supposed to be eating on a train, but like sometimes you in a rush sometimes that's the only go, meal yeah. you might have like most of the day it's just kind of like it was unnecessarily sometimes the grave you digging for somebody else baby you gonna fall in it yourself mm-hmm. now you done lost your whole book publishing deal and all that stuff is <laughs> you out here <laughs> cause my trouble and it's funny because she apologized she's like i'm sorry i, I deleted the tweet and then, then people were like what you apologizing for do you even know what you're apologizing for exactly. <laughs> probably not Mm-mm-mm. yeah Okay, so for our next story, we have reported multiple times that many southern states, red states, have enacted 
very strict abortion laws within the Mm -hmm. past few weeks. Mm -hmm. Well, now comes the backlash. This isn't really, oh, Lord, it's kind of like, yes, Lord, because, you know, people are taking action. But three Hollywood film companies have just said they will not film in Georgia because of these abortion laws. And we're hoping that, Mm. you know, other people, you know, kind of follow suit. Georgia has been a location for multiple TV shows and blockbuster films, including Black Panther. See? See? Did you know that? (laughs) No, I didn't know that. Uh, The Walking Dead, Stranger Things. Uh All of these. Oh, what? Yeah, see that? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the chief executive of Killer Films, David Simon, who created The Wire and The Deuce, as well as uh, Mark Dunlap's. Um, of the Dunlap's Brothers Production Companies have come out to say that they will not be filming in Georgia. Oh, boy. See? See, Georgia playing games. Because mm-hmm. this happened not too long ago. What, what, what was going on when they was... Um, states were trying to pass something, or maybe Indiana. Maybe it had to do with... Oh, I think maybe it was where they wouldn't... Um, they were able to deny same-sex... Folks like oh the the right to mm-hmm, yeah to eat or whatever in their uh, private businesses and then like the NCAA pulled out and said yeah. all, all places were doing that mm-hmm. yeah it's a lot of people that have been doing it but you know what's crazy is that Trump just actually I don't know if this was by executive order or something else but. I think repealed something, you know, related to the Justice Department that would make it to where healthcare providers could discriminate against people because of their religious beliefs. This is wild, man. So it's a lot of things happening right now. Like if y'all haven't seen Handmaid's Tales, you need to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, you know that's gonna be on my summer watch list. You need to watch. Looking, it. I've been looking for like a show, but I keep hearing about this. So I'm gonna put that on as my. How many seasons of it is there? There. Two two seasons, and oh, okay. the third one should be coming out this summer. Okay, that's not bad. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. Yeah, because it's just this. That's what's going on. That's what, that is really what's going on right now. It's wild. Yeah, it's wild. But what's crazy to me? So while the U.S. is passing all of these like uh, regressive laws related to uh, just people's rights, reproductive rights, um, you know, women's rights. Spain uh, actually passed a law. They actually passed it back in 2007, but they recently did some research uh, that found, so they passed a law that allowed new fathers to have paid paternity leave. Mm. And so they did kind of, uh, you know, before the law, after the law study related to uh, men's, I guess, reproductive preferences in terms of like the number of children they wanted to have, uh, have. and the men who did not have this paid paternity to leave wanted more children, while the men who had this option and took it after they learned or figured <laughs> out how much it takes to raise a child. <laughs> did not want any more children right away. And like they said, the effect actually lasted for at least five years after that first child. Oh my God. <laughs> That's wild. So, so on essence, if this can be a form of birth control, 
Yes. <laughs> Men taking care of their babies. <laughs> maternity. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I ain't know it was this much work. You know, let's just stick with the one or two, you know, for now. Let's see how things go. That's too funny. Yeah. Oh, my God. So it's just kind of like, you know, in the U.S., there are a lot of men who are making choices for women's bodies because they don't have to deal with the fallout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's still something I still can't wrap my head around how we got to this point, but this is again, why we definitely need, definitely need more uh, women um, in, in these spaces of power. Yes. Of power Cause it's just like ridiculous. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So this last story kind of relates to our topic for today uh, related to, you know, the intersex community. Uh, did you hear about the ruling from the, you know, international sports uh, organization related to the levels of testosterone that women in sports can or cannot have in order to compete? No, I didn't hear about this one. Okay. So have you ever heard of the athlete Castor Semenya? No. Okay, so she is a track star. And probably, I think, in 2009, like, she started taking the Olympics by storm. Uh, She is from South Africa. And after, you know, she started, like, dusting a lot of people, some officials started to question whether she was truly a woman. Really. And so over the last probably seven or eight years, she's had a battle because, you know, they made her undergo gender testing to, like, verify that she was truly a woman. Uh, And they actually found out or there's the suspicion that she has a condition called hyperandroidism, which means that her body naturally produces higher levels of testosterone. She's a woman, but she just naturally produces higher levels of testosterone. And she's been fighting back because she's like, you know, this is just natural human differences. I'm not taking any type of, you know, hormones or any type of supplements to improve my performance, but this is just naturally who I am. And I am, you know, still a woman. Well, the officials recently enacted a policy which says that women who naturally produce higher levels of testosterone have to take suppressants if they want to compete. Wow. That's crazy. And no one knows the potential effect that these unnecessary suppressants will have on, you know, their, you know, their body, their health, like no one knows. And they're just like, oh, well, we'll have to watch and see. And, you know, that's not good enough for her and other athletes. There's actually a story out now that two Kenyan women were recently, you know, dropped from their team because this ruling that just happened, like maybe like 10 days ago. Mm, that's wild. And so they won't be able to complete in the IAAF World Relay Championships because uh, the IAAF uh, instituted this like arbitrary ruling about the levels of testosterone that women can or cannot have. And we're not talking about them taking extra test. This this is just what they naturally have. They naturally produce. You can't do. You can't. If that's if that's what they naturally produce, and there's nothing. It should be no question about. It. Like it is what it is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And now people, they're trying to use it because they lose. <laughs> Stop looking for a reason why you yeah. why you're not winning. Like and this makes this makes me think about like you know when te- uh, when Serena Williams took the world by storm. You know how people like oh she's a man like how people 
Um, have you heard like people saying things like that about her? Yeah, especially when she first came into the league. Yeah, and it's just it that bothers me because we now have officials trying to define like who is male, who is female, who is a woman, who is a man. You know what I'm saying? And I I just don't like it. There are people who just naturally have sex, and I mean this just yeah. It this is why it's perfect for our episode for today because there are natural human differences. There are some people who might live their entire lives without knowing that you know, they supposedly have characteristics of a of a different sex because it's just kind of like, it's just, these are things that naturally happen and, but they don't fit into our worldview that there are only two, that there's male and female and, and that's kind of it. Yeah, and that's something we'll definitely talk about today. Uh, before I introduce the topic, there's a couple, two quick uh, stories that came to mind that I think we should just ha- quickly highlight. Mm-hmm. One is that uh, I know we talked about Chris Darden before, um, oh, defending yeah. <laughs> Eric Holder, uh, who shot the guy who shot Nipsey Hussle, and he recently uh, has withdrawn from being his uh, representation, legal representation. Um, uh-huh. He said he's been getting a lot of <laughs> death threats to, oh, to wow. him and his family. Um, uh, which you know is definitely not should not happen, but I'm yeah I'm not surprised um, as far as what's going on, especially because of the the uh, peers that people like Eric Holder around and, and Nipsey Hussle, right? Um, mm-hmm. I know they weren't going to take lightly to to that, um, especially if everyone knows he did it. So he's withdrawn his representation, so um, so he won't be representing Eric Holder anymore. Oh, that dude is always on the wrong side of history. But, <laughs> yes. but you know what? I will say okay. That's like a double-edged fork because we talk about justice here. And it's like everyone has the right to representation. Yeah. So it's just, you know what? I, I don't even know how, you know, I don't feel like people should be getting death threats. Every, you know, regardless yeah, of what you did, you have the right to threats. representation. Yeah. You know, although, this, you know, this guy confessed or, you know, people saw him. So it's it, that's one of those weird issues to where it's kind of like we really got to think about, you know, what we asking for. Or, yeah, or what we're pushing for. So. Yeah, no, no death threats. You know, you can get some side eyes. Yeah, <laughs> side eyes definitely. <laughs> but don't threaten the man's family because he's doing his his job, his profession. You know, um, even though that's not, you know, we all how we all feel about Eric Holder. It's still within the law that he still deserves representation. Um, and another black man decided to pick up that mantle to make sure that you know, I guess at the end of the day that he had a fair trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but. So there's a lot more social context to it, but yeah, you're yeah. right. And you want fair trials because when they don't, that's when people start appealing. That's when people yeah. start getting over things overturned. So yeah. we actually want a fair trial. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then the uh, second story, I'm sure you heard this story too. That happened this past week, Aisha Curry's comments. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I participated in a lot of online discussions too. <laughs> Um, I mean, you can help fill, me, fill in the blanks too if I miss anything, but um, I know Aisha Curry was recently on Red Table Talk, uh, which is um, a show with, uh, um, what's her name? Um, uh, Red-, Facebook show. Uh, Red Table Talk with uh, uh, Will Smith's Smith. wife, Jada yeah. Pickett-Smith. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, why? I'm blowing See, out. I'm filling it in. <laughs> yeah, Jada Pickett-Smith. And you know, her daughter's on there, her mother's on there as well. Mm-hmm. And they always bring various guests and have real, real conversations. Um, and this one was with Aisha Curry. And apparently she made comments along the line of, um, you know, how she's been with 
with Steph for like 10 years or so or more or whatever, you know, since they were young and that, you know, Steph has been the guy and gets a lot of attention on social media from women and the like, and that she's never really had that opportunity to have that kind of attention. And uh, so in a moment of vulnerability, she was kind of expressing how, you know, she would, I won't say like that kind of attention, but, you know, feel some type of way that she's not getting uh, a lot yeah. of attention from men, the same as Steph is getting. And so there was yeah. a lot of like debate going on on social media about this comment because a lot of people were attacking her in the sense of saying like, whoa, you know what I'm saying? You have this husband as you know you, you guys are rich well off you got kids he's a great guy and here you are still looking for attention um and then you know on the flip side i saw a lot of women on the other side say no i understand what what she's saying she's not really saying that but it's just kind of like insecurities what she her own insecurities what she was kind of highlighting and kind of being vulnerable about but people were taking it the wrong way but i just thought that conversation was interesting because i see everybody going back and forth online about it yeah so i i feel like you know it's definitely insecurity uh, I feel like that, like, if you're really feeling that insecure, I feel like it's a conversation you should have with your husband, but maybe <laughs> she has had those conversations with him. Um, I didn't feel like it was, so I didn't feel like it was controversial. I did feel like it was, that's a private conversation. Um, but what was interesting to me is it did not surprise me. A few years ago, there was a blow up about, you know, something that she said because she was like, oh, everybody out here showing skin. I'm, you know, saving my stuff or I'm keeping my stuff covered for the one who really matters. Yeah. Um, and like she said, she had said something else like uh, I'll be trendy while y'all be classy, something like that. And so hearing these comments, I actually wasn't shocked because that comment came off as insecure to me. Like you're feeling some type of way you're, you know, saying other people are attention seeking. You're going to keep it, you know, wrapped up for the one that really matters. So people were surprised because they're like, that seems so out of her character. But I'm like, both of those comments were like about her insecurities, but yeah. people just couldn't see those past comments because they see her as classy and stuff like that. But I read that as insecurity. I read this as insecurity and I just feel like she needs to get a handle on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like especially before you start out talking in the public about it, and you're still figuring out as you go, you know, the thoughts yourself. Because uh, yeah, that that blowback. Yeah, if you think about it, she's saying that the one time, and then now coming back and saying this is like with the first initial comments is like you don't want that attention. This is why you aren't dressing that way. But now you're coming back and like, oh, I kind of want that attention. It's like, all right, well, yeah, true. What do you talk about here? What's going on? And you know, people on the internet so petty. They actually found a tweet from like 2011 when she first oh got engaged gosh. to Steph, where it was like, uh, hey guys, not interested. Uh, I don't want your attention. I'm engaged now. And so <laughs> you some petty folk brought that up, like, and they was like having little st uh, Steph like faces toward looking like, for real, for real though. Because it's like, I, I just, you know, I don't know. She won attention just like everybody else, but I feel like she thought she had to like play this church wife role. Like, no, you young, be human. You have insecurities. Um, don't go judging other people because then this is why you get that type of backlash. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, two things. I just, one, I understood, I like when I had a conversation about, I understood from what she said, like she's been with Steph pretty much throughout her 
entire adulthood, you know, all her 20s and stuff. Mm. I'm like, there's a crucial times in there where you're like single, you know, you're hanging out, you get all this attention, you're out on the streets, you're hanging out with your girls and, but she's never had that. So I can understand like, (laughs) you know, you feeling like, dang, I never had that kind of opportunity just to have fun or hang out with my girls, but I was always in this serious relationship, which is fine. So I think that's understandable. And then I've seen a lot of memes talking about like, you know, like I trying to like from Steph's perspective, like, yeah. you know, imagine you like being NBA champion, making millions of dollars, being God fearing and and a good dad and and loving your wife. And then your wife comes out and just says, you know, I want attention from other guys. Like, how would you feel? I was like, yeah, that was funny, man. But yeah, I was like, yeah, she needs to kind of have conversations behind closed doors with her husband about this one. Yeah. And like you said, I, I will definitely say that I had so I had a boyfriend all throughout college, but, you know, we broke up right, you know. On my graduation day, I moved to Atlanta and that was a time that was a time where I was just single. I didn't have a boyfriend and I got to figure out who I was as a person. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that is so important, not just for women. I think it's important for young men as well. I tell my nieces and nephews, I'm like, you don't. And they don't want to hear it, but I'm like, you don't need a boyfriend. You need to figure out who you are right now. Have friends, hang out with people. But like, if you don't have that time to just figure out who you are and figure out how to be alone and be secure with that, then it's going to be hard to be happy with anybody else. Oh, yeah, that is the truth. Having that time alone, I think is very important. And, and that independence in a way, just to f- understand how you can like be by yourself, be okay with being by yourself. And really, like you said, figure out who you are as a person, because I mean, even when you get into a relationship, if you're not secure in who you are, understanding who you are, then it's going to be a very, it could be a very rocky relationship uh, as well. Yeah. Um, when people have all these insecurities, cause you're not, you're still trying to figure yourself out. Yeah. Um, and when you figure it out, the person you're with may or may not be the person for you on that journey. So that's why you figure out yourself before yeah, that. That's, that's, yeah. that's also true. Yeah. Uh, not saying that about Stephanie, but just in general. Oh, yeah. In general. general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, there you guys go. You got some BHD relationship advice for you this week. Yes. <laughs> take home with you. Yeah. <laughs> Too funny. Uh, but as we were uh, trying to segue in early before we got into a little off topic, um, yes, this this week's topic will be a unique topic. Uh, we're talking about the intersex community, and it was first introduced by Dr. Lords Dolores Fallon, who we um, had on episodes of a, a few, uh, like a while ago, around episode 39 or so, um, where we uh, talked about LGBTQI uh, issues in the community. And she had suggested during the interview, hey, we should really... Uh, have a conversation about the intersex community because it's really, really discussed when we talk about the the overall issues with the LGBTQI community. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she actually emphasized the I because yeah. I think at the beginning of the interview, we were like LGBTQ and yeah. she was like, don't forget the I. Don't forget the I. Um, so naturally, you know, definitely, not, definitely as people who just like knowledge, it piqued our interest. Um, and then uh, we were able to get a intersex activist on with us, a black intersex activist on with mm-hmm. us, uh, which was very eye-opening to us because she was right. Dr. Fons is right. It was a community that I really didn't know much about. Um, and for those of you wondering, right, and we'll be we address this in the interview, um, but it's not the, the way people usually associate the term people usually associate 
the intersex community with is is hermaphrodites, right? mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which is not the appropriate term, which we'll discuss in the interview. But I just, I, yeah, I just wanted to give you that kind of heads up. Is if you're trying to figure out well, what do you mean by intersex, and the people that's who most of the general public thinks about when we talk about that. But it is a wide spectrum, and it is not as black and white as what we think when we talk about hermaphrodites. And, and again, I'm, I'll save that content for the interview. And like, because uh, like we said, that is a very inappropriate term. Yeah, it is. It is. You'll learn during the interview. But I just wanted to throw that out there for those of you who may be confused um, as well. But but yeah, it was a great conversation. Uh, so we're ready to get into it. And I know you guys learned as much as we did during this, this interview as well with Cypher. Yep. All right. So we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. For today's interview, we will continue the conversation that was started with Dr. Lawrence Dolores Fallens in episode 39 about the LGBTQI issues in the Black community, but we'll focus explicitly on the I, the intersex community. We interview Sean Cypher Wall, an intersex activist, collage artist, and public health researcher based in Atlanta, Georgia. Better known as Cypher, he uses his voice as a platform to advocate for intersex children and adults, Black people, queer people, and other marginalized communities. During our conversation, we learn more about Cypher's background and journey as an activist, discuss the myths and misconceptions about intersex identity, highlight the major issues that intersex individuals face in childhood and adulthood, and discuss Cypher's work with the Intersex Justice Project. Welcome, Cypher. Hey, thank you so much, Terrell and Daphne. Of course, we're, we're really happy to have you and happy to have this conversation. Yes. Um, So we always start our interviews off by just asking our guests, tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you? You know, how did you become involved in your work and your advocacy around intersex rights and issues? Mm, That's a great question Um, to answer. Who am I? Um, Wow. I mean, I think (laughs) no shortage of uh, deep questions, huh? Um, I would say... If I could start from somewhere, I would say what what motivates me to do this work. And I think hopefully in answering that, I can answer the question about who I am. Um, so what motivates me to do intersex activism is that I was born intersex. Um, I was born with one of um, 30 intersex traits. Um, and my particular trait is known as androgen <clears throat> insensitivity syndrome. Um, and by that, I mean that it affects uh, XY fetuses and their responsiveness to testosterone uh, in the womb, uh, in utero. And I'm one of seven living people in my family with this particular trait. And AIS is along a spectrum. So there are people who are completely insensitive to testosterone and there are people who are partially sensitive to testosterone, um, which is in my case. Um, intersex traits affect uh, 1.7% of the human population. Um, there was a kind of comparison going around that it's as common as people with red hair, but for people who are outside of the U.S. and Europe, um, I would say it's probably as common as people um, who are twins. And I think for me, you know, I ground this in a Southern legacy. I ground it in my mother's lineage um, because my grandmother... Um, was the first person in my family. My mom's mom was the first person to have intersex children. And this was happening in the Deep South in Wilmington, North Carolina during Jim Crow. Um, So things just weren't talked about. 
And in my family, even though we all have this trait and the similarity, we don't talk about um, being intersex. And I think that's really the impact of shame and stigma and silence that surrounds um, people who have intersex traits. And so for me, my commitment is to um, kind of be Black and be intersex, right? Because they're both happening at the same time. I think often when I look back on my life as a queer activist, especially during the 90s, I think it was always this kind of having to choose, or at least in my mind, but I think it was an issue for other people as well, having to choose between being Black or being queer, you know, like, which one do you represent? You know, which camp do you fall in? And I think for me, it's just like, I have to talk about being Black, I have to talk about being intersex, how they inter- how they overlap, where they diverge. Um, and so I think if I answer the question, who am I? I think I... You know, I am an intersex activist. I am committed to Black liberation. I am an artist that uses sort of images um, that incorporate, you know, African-American spirituality, um, kind of lifting us up, centering Black women and Black children. Um, you know, I'm, I was once a daughter. I'm a son. Um, you know, I'm a lover. I'm a friend, I'm a brother, you know, I'm all these things happening at the same time. Um, so I think that's, you know, my answer from my heart, my heart and soul. Mm, no, definitely, definitely appreciate that. And, um, you know, <clears throat> before we even move further, I want to just because even when we talked to Dr. Fallins and we talked about it, briefly mentioned intersex. Um, and, you know, I know for myself, it was just uncharted territory and not really familiar with it was. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are in the same position. Um, and, you know, I know you mentioned there are, you know, 30 different traits about. Um, so I know, of course, we don't have to go into all of them. But can you just give us a, a general sense, right? A, you know, a, a definition or, or the d- types of traits that would be associated of what it means to be intersex and things along those lines for our listeners. So we can probably have a clear, basic understanding. Um, of course, Terrell. Mm-hmm. I think um, with intersex traits, I, you know, I have to put it in a context um, that human beings are as diverse as flowers, um, as diverse as fruits. And I think a lot of how we understand and identify intersex is based on medical practitioners who decide who is intersex and who is not intersex. Mm. And a working definition of intersex um, is someone whose body, whether it be their genitals, their chromosomes, um, their hormones, exists or are atypical for what we consider male and female. So intersex people have non-binary bodies. Because of having non-binary bodies, uh, intersex children, infants and children are often subject to harmful, medically unnecessary surgeries. So often the site, the original, and the first site of trauma for an intersex child is often in infancy. And, you know, I think a lot of the rhetoric that doctors are using now is that, oh, these surgeries that we do are reversible or, you know, we just need to do this one surgery and then the child will be normal, quote, 
normal, right? And often there's more than one surgery. And if you can imagine sort of having multiple surgeries on your genitals, Mm. being examined by residents and doctors, you know, sort of this medical display, this medical examination. Um, It's just really impactful and it's really devastating. Um, And I think that's why there's something else that I wanted to um, kind of share and hopefully it'll come back because it totally slipped my mind. Um, But I think this is why we do the activism that we do um, to sort of raise consciousness and raise awareness about how intersex people exist. Right. But I think medical practitioners have done a really good job of um, sort of trying to erase intersex people's existence. So some examples of kind of um, intersex traits that exist, like there's one trait that doctors would be like, well, we don't think that's an intersex trait. Again, sort of like medical practitioners deciding who's intersex and who's not. But there is an intersex trait um, known as hypospadias, where the urethral opening is closer to the base of the penis um, than near the tip. Mm. And it concerns urologists and it concerns doctors because of how we construct gender in our society, right? We, be, we believe that girls should play with Barbie dolls, boys should play with trucks. Boys are rough, girls are gentle. Um, boys should stand up to pee, girls should sit down to pee. And if those things are not in alignment, then it creates panic for us as a society. So with hypospadias, whenever they're little boy children um, who have hypospadias, doctors will try to do what's called hypospadias repair, where they try to make the urethra as close to the tip of the penis um, as possible. And again, it's not just one surgery. It's often multiple surgeries. And I think my position as an activist is, why can't we leave children alone and let the children decide what they want to do with their bodies. I think everyone has a sovereign right to their bodies. Mm, that's that's really, um, I don't know, it's really, you know, disturbing that people are deciding for someone else so young. Um, and you, I actually heard you mention that you were once a daughter. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that, but does that mean that for a while a decision was made for you and then you made a decision yourself? Yeah. Um, I think for me, it's important to name that, right? And I think we have to talk about the impact and how arbitrary gender is, that doctors can look at someone and just assign a gender, not knowing not knowing how that child will develop, not knowing what that child, who that child would desire, not knowing what is going on in that child's mind. And what's problematic is that doctors assign a gender and then do surgery to align that gender um, with what society deems as functional or normal. So for me, you know, I was born, my mom, she passed away last year. I actually wrote a piece about her in this local online um it's a queer publication here in atlanta called wussy mag um and i wrote about me and my mom's journey because she passed last year in january and 
what was so profound when I had talked to my mom before she passed is that she knew she had a son, right? So before me, she had two children who were also assigned female at birth, but they kind of stayed with that female gender assignment. And I was the only one who was assigned female at birth. And um, later, when I was 25 years old, decided I don't want to live my life as a woman. Like, I want to live my life as a male. But what makes my, and this is where we need to distinguish between trans and intersex. Like, I think there's overlap. And I think there's very real divergence as mm. well. Because, because I was assigned female at birth, you know, doctors looked at me and I had ambiguous genitals and they were like, hmm, well, this child's phallus, although they felt testes in my abdomen, right? My lower abdomen, although they felt testes, because my phallus was not large enough, according to their standards, they made the arbitrary decision to rate, to assign me as female. Mm. And I remember it was written in my medical records that, you know, the child has gonads, which is undifferentiated sex tissue. The child has gonads, not testes, it was underlined. And the child will be raised as a girl and function as such. That was a prescription mm. to my mom, right? That was the first lie that was recorded. And essentially, they told my mom I was a girl. I was brought home. And so the little boy that my mom thought she had, um, they told her she actually had a girl, which was incorrect. So she raised me as a girl, my, my, my given name was Suzanne. And I remember as a little kid being like, I don't feel like a girl. Like I remember up to the age of seven, like I thought I was a boy. And I remember my mom sat down with me and she was just like, you're not a little boy, you're a little girl. Um, and I remember there was this one incident where I had this huge crush on my sister's best friend, Tanya. Ooh, Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> Tanya. And I remember she came um, up to, for, it was some vacation. I think it was Thanksgiving or Christmas. She came up because, um, you know, I grew up in the Bronx. And she came up with my sister, Pam. And essentially, I remember I put on my like my my vest, you know, my Scooby Doo slippers, and I'm, my corduroy pants, and, I'm, <laughs> and I was like pointed at her, and I'm like, I'm gonna marry her. See, the game, the game was strong. Even when I was a kid, the game was strong. <laughs> you know, I remember that stuck with me. That memory stuck with me, and I asked my mom. I was like, Do you remember that? This was years later, probably a few years ago, and she's like, I do. And I, and, I, and I thought for me, sometimes, you know, you have memories and you're like, did this really happen? Is this a dream? And she was like, I do remember that happening. And I was like, well, what did you say to me? And she was just like, I said that you are a little girl and girls can't marry girls. And then I responded to her, well, I'm not a little girl. So it, it just kind of goes to show, right, that little kids, I think we, we underestimate how smart children are. And what they know about themselves and their bodies and their experiences. And so I fell into line. You know, I, um, I grew up as an awkward girl, you know, tomboy, liked girls ever since I was a little girl. And I just always felt awkward in my body, right? And I remember in 2004, I went to this 
I gave testimony at this commission hearing in San Francisco. It was the New York, it was the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. And I remember an intersex activist stood up and they said that, you know, psychologists want to tell me that I have gender dysphoria, but actually I have body dysphoria. And I, I think that always stuck with me because for me, it wasn't an issue of gender. Like I knew what my gender was, but I think my body was being altered. My body would be altered, right? In a way that became kind of unrecognizable or unfamiliar to me. And I think the pivotal mark is when I was 13, like I was starting to develop as male. And mm. the doctors saw this because my mom, you know, because my testes were not descended, you know, I probably, I spoke to a doctor years later and they was like, well, you probably had hernias, right? So I would have pain around my testicles. And the doctors saw, you know, that I still had my testes and um, they made a decision um, that, oh, the testes need to be re- removed. And they told my mom that my testicles were cancerous. Mm. You know, and they use the language of like my gonads were cancerous, not my testicles. Wow. I would have known that I had testicles and given my gender issues, she probably would have asked me, do you want to be raised as a boy? You know, or like, do you feel like you want to have been a boy? And I remember she told me years later, she's like, if I would have known then what I know now, you have to let boys be boys. Now, of course, you know, my mom has, <laughs> you know, she's from the old school. She had like, you know, boys and girls and this kind of language. It's not language that I use, but this is what she use, right? But I think all of that to say, she would have respected my decision um, to have the experience that I wanted to have. But I think she was also scared of cancer, right? Um, and if these doctors are saying that your child has cancerous organs inside of them, what is the parent going to do? The parent's going to make the best decision for their child. So they took my testes, they put me on estrogen and Provera and progesterone, which totally feminized my face and body. And those are effects that still live with me today, right? Because adolescence is such a fertile time um, when there are hormones that exist then that probably won't exist any other point in your life. Um, and I think for me, that's that. That's a kind of like manipulation that I can't comprehend. And I think the only thing that I can sort of reduce from that experience and my subsequent experience of like growing up is just like there must be a profound hatred and disgust of um, intersex bodies and people who have bodies that are outside of what we consider a quote normal. Um, And so for me, my transition to male, um, my medical and social transition was a way of reclaiming my body and my life. Um, And even though like I take synthetic testosterone and even though it doesn't do the same thing for me that my testes would have done, I think I feel good because I was able to, you know, reclaim a part of myself that was taken away. Um, and I'm also grateful that I wasn't subjected to genital mutilation um, because after they removed my testes, they wanted to create a vagina for me. Mm. Um, and they told my mom that, you know, we met with the surgeon and the surgeon was like, well, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to shave down the clitoris. This is what he said. These are his exact words. I'm going to shave down the clitoris and I'm going to create a cavity inside of you so that you can have sex with your future husband. 
So for me as a 13 year old, like I was literally horrified, horrified. You know, do you, can y'all hear <laughs> how barbaric that sounds? Yeah. Um, and so I think in our, you know, in our movement and in intersex rights movement, it's this discussion of comparing intersex genital mutilation to female genital mutilation. Because it's the same thing. Um, whereas there are no protections for um, people who are intersex whose bodies are being mutilated. You know, what, um, listening to your story and <clears throat> situation, what I'm just thinking like, what if somebody is, if a parent, you know, has a baby and they find themselves in a situation and they have to listen to doctors, you know, what would be the advice you would give to me situation. I'm sure every situation is is different depending on, you know, what's going on with that baby. Uh, but what would be some advice as far as how to handle the situation uh, so it may not be impact the child later on or, or making decisions and stuff along those lines? Yeah, you know, I just want to extend compassion because um, I don't see myself being a parent anytime soon. People who are about that life. They're about <laughs> that life, you know? Um and so I think there's a lot of urgency around the birth of a child, right? Because, um, you know, a child coming through into this world is a very violent process. You know, the vaginal canal is squeezing this child out, you know? <laughs> Anything can happen. Um, so it's a really heightened, stressful situation for parents. But I think this is where, one, I think we need more education, in hospitals and clinics, um, more education with midwives and doulas, um, gynecologists, obstet- oh, I'm going to mess this one up. Um, can someone help me? Obstetricians? Yeah, obstetrician. And you can just say OB. OB, <laughs> OB, you know. Um, this is where we need the education because if, you know, if a child is born intersex, it's not a medical emergency. Mm-hmm. it's okay. The child will be okay. Your child is normal. They just have a variation in their genitals or their chromosomes or their hormones, but mm-hmm. the child is okay. And I think how medical practitioners are able to um, kind of push these surgeries is that they make it seem as if this is a social emergency. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, they make it seem like it's a medical emergency when in actuality it's a social emergency. It's not a medical emergency. And if the parents are able to pause long enough to be able to consult with different people, to be able to reach out to intersex people, to be able to do their research on Google. Because now, you know, there's a wealth of intersex resources. You know, parents don't necessarily have to make an urgent decision. I think they can wait, you know, Um, because I feel like the consent process um, for these surgeries, it's not a thorough informed consent process. Because if the surgeon would have said to my mom, we're going to remove your child's testicles. Your child is going to be dependent on hormones for the rest of their life. They may or may not be able to afford those hormones. Um, your child's testicles are, are healthy. They're not cancerous. I don't think my mom would have went through 
um, with the surgery. I think my mom would have actually been like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to take a gamble. <laughs> you know? um, and so I think um, if there can just be a pause, just a moment just to reflect and kind of take the urgency out of the situation. Like I remember I was dating someone about a year ago and she shared with me, like your urgency is not my emergency. And I was like, yes, yes, I'm here for that. Right. Um, so I feel like if parents are like, you know what, I have this intersex child, all the tests came back. The child is fine. There's no emergency. We're just going to let the child be. And we're going to let the child decide what they want to do when their body, with their body, when they are of age. It's so simple. It's so simple. Mm. I remember I got into this debate with this emergency room physician because I gave a talk on behalf um, of the Estrella Intersex Fund, which is um, part of the Estrella uh, Foundation. And I remember this physician came up to me and he was like, you know, so, you know, sometimes you just need to do these surgeries. And I was like, wow, you're an asshole. But um, I was like, well, that's like saying, you know, that's like a parent having a child, a baby boy, right? And the parents, seeing that this child has a small phallus, goes to a doctor and be like, you know what? It's hard for little boys. It's hard for men who have small penises. We want to do a surgery to make the child's penis larger so that he won't have issues later on. Right. And doctors are probably like, hey, what are you talking about? You know, we need to let nature sort of take its course before deciding on this procedure. Um, why can't. And that's just that's just a random example. Right. But I think what I'm trying to get at is like, why can't we extend that same right, that same courtesy to parents of intersex kids? Um, and one thing that I'll add um, to that is that recently Human Rights Watch put out a report last year. And what they found is that in these situations where there is a push for surgery is that surgeons have the most bias, more so than the father, more so than the mother. Like the, mm. the surgeons have the highest rate of discontent and dissatisfaction with intersex children. Mm. And I think that's pretty profound. Like, I think it, it lets us know what we're up against. Wow. I mean, everything you just said, I'm just I'm like sitting here just in shock. Um, like I said earlier, you know, disturbed. And I agree. You said let nature take its course. I'm Ty, I'm really happy you asked that question about what parents can do, because we all want happy, healthy children. And like you said, Saifa, having an intersex child, you that is a healthy child and is like you said, is not an emergency. And I'm so happy we're having this conversation because, you know, I don't I don't think people should do anything, you know, at birth or at childhood that can have like long lasting impacts on their on, on their children. Um, so wait, folks. Oh, my goodness. I'm so happy you shared all of this. One one other thing you mentioned is that um, you kind of mentioned that there are there's overlap, there's some overlap, but there's also some divergence when it comes to like trans identity and intersex identity. And so that seems like, OK, that might be a misconception that people have. And I was wondering, are there any other myths and misconceptions that uh, people might have about intersex uh, identity um, and the intersex community? 
Mm. So would you mind asking or rephrasing your question so I can understand it correctly? Um, just if there are any myths and misconceptions, um, I kind of thought of this question after you stated that there's, um, there, you know, there's some overlap between like trans identity and inter or some commonalities, but there are also, you know, things that like diverge. And so it made me wonder like what other myths and misconceptions do people have about like intersex identity, um, or the intersex community? So okay. it doesn't have to be about trans, but just like that's what kind of prompted, um, you know, the question. Great. That's a great question. Um, I think the misconceptions that exist about um, intersex people, um, one is that I, I just came back from Kenya and hopefully, fingers crossed, um, Kenya would be the first African nation to um sort of implement protections for intersex children, uh, infants and children. Um, so it was really amazing and humbling to be there um, to sort of witness those conversations. And hopefully um, this legislation won't die in parliament. Um, hopefully um, there'll be enough oomph to kind of um, push it through. So I'm really rooting for Kenya from the US. Um, so when I was there, you know, I would tell people um, that I'm intersex. And the first thing they would say is that, are you gay? You know, so there's this conflation, at least in that context. I don't, you know, there's different stuff happening in the U.S. context. But in that context, there was this conflation of intersex and gay. And so the conversation that's happening now on the continent um, in places like South Africa and Kenya and Uganda um, is sort of separating I from LGBTI, um, sort of really sort of um, kind of um, fleshing out and really creating a distinction between trans and intersex. I think often when people think of intersex, they think that it's so rare, you know, like, oh, these are, this is so rare or so exotic, right? Um, that intersex people are hermaphrodites, that they, which is biologically impossible for humans. There's no, you know, intersex, you know, human beings can't be hermaphrodites. There are things like roses and snails can be hermaphroditic, but human beings cannot. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also, like I said, that we're so rare, and I think it's more common than we think. Um, I think more and more people I talk to, you know, they're, Friends who I talked to and there's was like, well, you know, I like say, for instance, people who have polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, there's been some back and forth as to whether that's an intersex trait or not. And I think it is I think it is something that I would consider intersex just because there's, you know, especially for people who are assigned female, they grow facial hair. Um, and they sometimes they may exhibit male pattern baldness. And I think this is so interesting, right? Um, that I think probably intersex is more normal or more normalized than we think. Um, and I think there's just not a lot of education about um, intersex people to make a distinction, right? Um, I think there's, I think we know a lot about what trans is, Um 
And I think sometimes where the conflation happens is that, oh, trans people um, have a choice. They get to choose their gender. And I think, you know, what we're finding is that gender kind of lives in the brain, right? Um, And so I think, I don't know. I think for me, it's just, what intersects, there's a biological reality that we have to contend with. Um, And sort of just to kind of jump and kind of extrapolate, that's what made the Trump memo really harmful, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To say that, that sex is fixed, that you, if you have male organs that you're male and if you have female organs that you're female and that's just not true um and i think it creates more of a um of a situation where intersex people can continue to be mutilated right um especially if they have genitals that don't align with neatly with male and female um and i think there are other misconceptions that i can't really think of right now um but I think those are the big ones that come to mind, right? That intersex people are hermaphrodites. Intersex people are rare. Um, like, yeah, I think those are the big ones. That come mm-hmm. to mind. No, for sure. Um, and, you know, I know you touched on, you know, when you're describing your journey and your experiences um, and some of the challenges that you had to deal with personally as well. You know, are there any other issues or, you know, trends um, or challenges when it comes to intersex individuals that that they face uh, in in both childhood and adulthood um, that may not, you know, people may not be aware about? I mean, I think this is what makes the conversation around surgery so impactful Mm -hmm. Um, because these surgeries cause a significant amount of trauma um, that people live with for the rest of their lives. And you know, this trauma kind of manifests as like PTSD, um, anxiety, hypervigilance, um, distrust of a very real um, founded distrust of medical practitioners. Um, I think it can really kind of like impact the family unit um, because the person may feel betrayed by their family, by their parents, especially. Um, and I think, you know, if we're talking about misconceptions, I think one big misconception is that intersex people can be fixed. Right. Um, and I think doctors sort of take this view of like, if there's an intersex person who's born, we did, we fixed them. So now they can just go off and be functional members of society. You know, they may or may not be able to have kids, but they can live normal heterosexual lives. Like, I think a lot of the bias um, and the reason why um, these surgeries are done are to reinforce heterosexuality, to make sure boys have penises, to make sure, you know, women have nice deep vaginas to, you know, accommodate those penises. Um, It's just really like, it's really messed up, you know? Um, And I think for me, it's just like, we have to really be in a conversation about sort of the impact of these surgeries on people's lives, right? The impact of the surgeries, the impact of the the shame and the stigma and the silence, right? Um, And I think one thing that I have to kind of put out there, I was talking with my colleague who's trans um, and he just totally had this, you know, this light bulb came on and he was just like, you know, these surgeries are done to for the comfort of society Mm. 
um, to address society's mania around gender. And it's not done for the comfort of the child. It's not done for the comfort of the child who will become an adult. It's done for the comfort of the parents and it's done for the comfort of society. And I think this is what we need to really shift. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely agree. Um, childhood is a, is a small part of our lives. And, you know, you have to raise adults that are, you know, happy with their bodies, um, that are fully able to express their identities. Um, so I agree. Um, so kind of, uh, moving, I, I want to talk a little bit more about your work and what you're doing to, you know, bring awareness, uh, to these issues. So can you tell us a little bit about the intersex justice project? Yes. Um, so in, so I've been an activist, um, for, for a while. Like I would say that I started to step into intersex activism in 2000. And, you know, I think for me, it was just like recognizing that what happened to me was not fair. And if it's happening to me, I know it's happening to other people. And then meeting and talking with other people, I realized I was like, wow, we were all told the same lie. Like all of our parents were told the same thing. So how can you have people from different walks of life, different genders, different ethnicities, different social classes, all having very similar stories, all having variations of the same lie or variations of the same story. It's wild, right? Um, And so for me, I was like, okay, that's what kind of launched me into activism. And then I, I was going along, I started to feel really lonely. And I started to have those feelings like I did you know, as a young queer activist where I just felt like spaces were really white and just seeing how even the representation of intersex now, as I try to get my story out there, that people often see white, cisgender, you know, gender conforming representations of what it means to be intersex. And I think it really speaks to the racism that exists in the U.S., and the racism that exists in our media. It's just like, if we're going to document intersex voices, we're always looking for white intersex voices to represent this issue. And, you know, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, like for me, I am unapologetically Black and I'm unapologetically intersex. And those two are always being held in tension. They're always happening at the same time. So in 2016... Um, me and um, my collaborator, co-conspirator, uh, Pigeon Pagonis, uh, we, released, uh, we released a statement uh, for Intersex Awareness Day, which falls on October 26th of every year. And it was the, the statement was by Intersex People of Color for Justice. Long ass name. And we sort of cl- reclaimed heroes who matter to us, you know, um, and talked about why it's important to um, recognize and acknowledge and affirm people of color in this movement. And I think for me, it's, it was almost like this, this desire and this push so that my existence wouldn't be erased. Um, and the following year, um, we planned, a, we issued a second statement and we planned a protest at Lurie Children's Hospital. And we went back and forth about the name and I came up with the name, Intersex Justice Project. 
And for me, the goal of the Intersex Justice Project um, is to center people of color and Black people in this intersex movement. Because if, if we don't make that commitment to center Black and intersex voices, you know, the mainstream movement is not going to do that for us. So, because for me, as an intersex activist, as a Black intersex activist, you know, my words have been appropriated. People have tried to appropriate my work, my contributions. Um, my labor sometimes as an activist has not been respected. And these are issues that Black people deal with all the time. <laughs> you know, these are not mm-hmm. issues. We have dealt with this for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's just like, I see IJP as a way for me and for other people who are people of color to and who are intersex to insert ourselves into this conversation. So the mission and the goal of IJP is to push, to put pressure on hospitals to change their policies with regard to intersex infants and children. So our campaign, our long-term campaign is against Leary Children's Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. And we're putting direct pressure on them through direct action and protests. But I think we're also like looking for these softer targets, you know, hospitals who may be on the cusp of wanting to change their policy and who might need a little nudge, right? Um, Because as we know, you know, hospitals are major corporations in the U.S. You know, like the medical establishment is very wealthy. They have a huge lobby, you know, and they get what they want in this country. So essentially we're going up against this, this lion, this beast of a system. But, you know, that's what our ancestors did, right? You know, our ancestors imagined freedom. Our ancestors imagined something beyond themselves. And there were probably some of, you know, some of our folks who never thought that they would, that slavery would be indefinite, right? But there were people who were like, there is something so much bigger that we need to rest into. That's, there's a possibility for us that's, that exists somewhere in the future. Um, and so I do believe that as we do this work, um, I think eventually one day as a society, 50, 100 years from now, maybe I'll see it in my lifetime, where they'll look back and be like, wow, what we were doing was absolutely barbaric. How, can we, how could we have done that? Mm. What made that okay, right? Um, and so I think IJP is just kind of like really trying to push that vision that we want to see in the world and we want to enable black and people black and people of color who are intersex to do that work. Oh nice. You know, you know, thinking about just how people um engage with these conversations that they may not be familiar with, sometimes they there's not a sensitivity there or they're just is not they ignorance as far as what language to use and not use um, when engaging in these conversations. And I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, sometimes people say intersex and they think hermaphrodite and all this other kind of stuff. So when we're talking about language, is there a particular type of language that people should avoid when engaging in these conversations about intersex identity? I think as far as language goes, mm-hmm. um, I think if we and this is where the education comes in. And I think the education is endless Um, because I think a lot of people, when thinking about intersex, people are just like, uh, 
I don't know what that is. But then if you say hermaphrodite, then people are like, oh, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got both. And it's like, no, no, no. Um, (laughs) And so essentially, I think just that kind of bottom line, it's just like, okay, if we can, you know, if we can just start maybe using intersex to refer to um, people who have this, who have these traits. Um, But also, and again, kind of going back to what you shared around misconceptions, um, is that, you know, not all, um, you know, there are people who are intersex and who are queer, um, but not all queer people are intersex, right? And not everyone who's intersex is queer. Um, I think that's important to sort of put out there. And not everyone who's intersex wants to be known as intersex. I think there are people who really identify along the binary, right? Like people in my family are like, I am a woman or I am a man. People may not want to be identified as intersex. And that's okay too, you know? Um, Because I think language is sometimes a tricky thing, right? Like language, I think sometimes we can... Language can be liberatory and it can also be oppressive. Um, And I think it's just kind of important to note that, you know, like, um, so I I think, you know, we kind of need to create space for people just to be, because there might be people like, like some in Scotland right now, they're trying to have a government consultation on intersex, where the government consultation is that they're trying to pass a law that would protect intersex infants and children but they want to hear from intersex people. And the problem that one of the issues that they're having is that there's some people who don't identify with being intersex. They identify as having a particular trait, but they may not identify as intersex. Um, and kind of like what I was saying earlier, just to kind of create room for people to um, identify with being intersex or not, you know, I think all that is okay. Mm, yeah. Speaking of, you know, education, you know, this is, you know, how we start to uh, get people on board and get people to have more understanding. I am wondering, like, you know, are there any resources that people can use to become more educated about intersex rights or how they can actually become involved in intersex advocacy? So learn more, but also participate. Um, are there any resources or, or campaigns that they can participate in? Yeah. So here uh, in the U.S., there several organizations that are doing sort of intersex work. Um, For people who are in or around Texas, there's the Houston Intersex Society. Um, There's a national organization called Interact. Um, It's for intersex uh, youth, I think up to 25, I believe. Um, But they also use legal strategies uh, for the protection of intersex um, young people as well. And they have like a big youth kind of component. Um, they also have a separate website, um, called for intersex. So it's the number four and the term, uh, the word intersex.org. And basically that has a lot of really good information about like, you know, what I wish my doctors knew or like an intersex 101 or intersex 102, um, that, that website has a wealth of resources. 
Um, if people are interested in doing more direct action or, you know, pointing us where we can get more money to do this work, um, there's the Intercess Justice Project. Um, we can be found um, online uh, at intersexjusticeproject.org or on Instagram at intersexjusticeproject. Um, I think those are the orgs that, at least in the United States, are doing um, work. But definitely, if people want resources and if people want to learn more and get educated, I think the number four intersex.org, I think that's a great website. Nice, nice. And we'll definitely be sure to plug all that stuff up on the on the post when we um, publish this episode. Uh, but, you know, is there anything that we haven't covered or, you know, that came to mind that you want to that you want to say before we close out? Yeah, I want to say that I just feel totally honored um, to be asked to come on this podcast. And I think the reason why it touches my heart is that I feel like I really want to bring this conversation home to my community, to my folks, right? And I, and I do wish that as Black people um, that we can continue to engage or start this conversation around intersex. Um, because I think it's something, you know, I think having come back from Kenya, I realized, I'm just like, man, I love Black people. And I always knew that. I always <laughs> I love Black people. But I think for right now, given our political climate, given what's happening, you know, I live in Georgia, Stacey Abrams all the way, you know, I realize is that we need to, we are, we are literally all we have. Um, in this very brutal, murderous system um, that we've been, you know, that we've been born into in the United States. Um, and so for me, I just think it's so important to talk about intersex, because for me, where the overlap is in my identity with being Black at intersex is that there's this kind of institutional violence that happens to Black people, and there's institutional violence that happens to intersex people. And I don't, I don't, and I don't always want to frame it in terms of like um, violence, right? Like I don't think it's important to always come from a place of struggle because I think there are ways in which we feel joy, in which we live and embody joy, and in which we thrive. Um, so I don't want to always sort of put our our sort of journey as Black people in the context of struggle, because that's not only who we are. But I do feel like um, I, I do I do want us to have more and more conversations about intersex. Like I want Black people to know about intersex, right? Um, just like Black folks are having conversations about um, trans, like, you know, Black trans women. And I think there's some conversations that get ignored, frankly, you know? Um, so it may not be perfect, but I really see the opportunity to, um, come on here and talk with y'all and y'all have been so wonderful and just humble and so curious and so respectful. Like my, my desire is, and my question is like, how do we create more spaces to have these types 
of dialogue. Uh, I agree. And, um, I, we we are happy to you know have you with us. Um, this was a conversation, or we wanted to start having conversations about LGBTQ issues, and then it was Dr. Fallon that was like, "Don't forget the eye, don't forget the eye." Kind of like what you were mentioning, and um, you know we've been wanting to have this for a while, and we wanted to actually we thought it was important to give voice to someone who was not only knowledgeable from like maybe an academic standpoint or a professional standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint, mm-hmm. um, because we think that's a part of um, raising o- awareness and eliminating the erasure that I've like read about. Um, and so we're just happy that you responded to us and, you know, wanted to come on and, you know, made time for this conversation because I I felt like I've learned a lot and Mm -hmm. I feel like just hearing the story, um, I feel, I feel fired up, um, in, in a way that is just kind of like, this is, is urgent that people, become aware of these things because there are certain things that just need to stop now, you know? Mm -hmm. I think also for me, what feels really important um, in doing this work is to establish our humanity as intersex folks. And we know about that conversation as Black people, right? Where in this country, we were seen as like, three-fifths human. We weren't even considered a human. We were considered like chattel or property. Um, And currently, you know, if you are in prison, you are the property of the state. So I think we always have been engaged in this centuries-long sort of fight for our humanity to be recognized as human. And I think for me, as a Black intersex person, it's like, how can I be fully embodied? Like, how can I be in all of my humanity and fight for the humanity of other people. No, I I think that's absolutely important. And that's where this conversation, you know, starts. And I know BHD, we want to continue having these conversations. Uh, We don't want this to, like we said before with Dr. Fallens, we don't want this to be like a a one-time thing. Like, oh, we, you know, we we had a conversation and that's it. We feel like this should be an ongoing conversation um, to ensure that like people can't run away. Mm-hmm. People can't run away. So yeah, really no, for fun. sure. No, but yeah, I definitely learned a lot, and we uh, we appreciate you taking the time to come out and chat with us today. And I'm sure our listeners will get a lot from this as well, and want to follow up. And we'll definitely post the websites and the social media pages so they can continue to be engaged and educated on this matter as well, and, and share it around, and just continue to promote and raise awareness on these issues that are are very very important um, for sure. And I'm just glad that, you know, we create this platform for somebody like yourself that can come on and, and share this uh, because, like I said, I learned a lot. And um, mm. and I definitely want to continue to keep my eye on these, eye on these issues and, and be um, a supporter of it as well. Right. Okay. We're, in this, we're all in this together. And I think that's an, an important thing. Appreciate it. We all we got. <laughs> we all we got. We all we got. <laughs> Nico Brown. Wait, was it was it Nico Brown? Who was it who said that? We all we got, man. Oh, that's the Saint Lunatics. Uh, you know, like uh, Murphy Lee, Nelly. We all we got. Yeah, or at least that's when I remember it. But remember New Jack City? Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. 
all we got, man. We all we, we got. All, we all we right. got. You're right. You're actually right. You took it back. Oh, man. All right. All right. Well, um, this was great and look forward to the next conversation. Yes. Cool. So thank y'all so much. Uh, thank you. Okay, Dad, so what you think about our conversation with Cypher Wall and about the intersex community? Um, It was so eye-opening, and I'm so, so glad that Dr. Fallens um, recommended Cypher uh, and that Cypher responded because, you know, if you can... I, I don't know how anyone could listen to this interview and not, like, come away feeling... Um, fired up to advocate for the community. I don't know how they could leave this interview not feeling just like more informed and educated and motivated to learn more because, you know, there's a a lot more, even just like figuring out what are the, you know, different intersex traits. Like, so it's just kind of like this interview should have you fired up. It should have you curious to learn more. Um, And it, it should have you ready to just like, advocate um and so i i just appreciate the time um i i appreciate the time and i'm happy we were able to do it on this platform mm-hmm. nah you know i mean you're right i mean this is like you know i mean we, we've had tons of interviews um and i feel like you know this is i could say one of the interviews where i just i looked at, as far as the topic is concerned i just knew very very little about and so um you know, everything was eye opening to me from listening to, to his experience, you know, and his perspective and and even just like the impact the medical field has uh, on this particular population of folk, you know. And uh, I think, you know, I just kept thinking of things like, you know, especially black folk and in our experiences with the medical field and thinking about things like, you know, Tuskegee experiments, dealing with syphilis thinking would go on during slavery and even, you know, that's what he mentioned in the beginning, drawing those connections too. Um, and it just shows, you know, why there's still this distrust between, you know, particularly black folks, but also, you know, black folks with multiple identities as well. And going through these experiences, especially with the intersex community, um, it's just problematic in so many ways. And, and I'm glad that he addressed, you know, what if somebody's in these situations, what can be done? And it's okay to take a pause and get as informed as possible. And I feel like, especially as black folk, that's what we need to do um, more than any other groups. You know, we just can't just believe what the doctors say. You know, that's where, you know, you just want to trust their, their expertise. But most of the time, even when we had the conversations about, um, you know, um, the difficulties of, of being pregnant as a black woman, you know, and, just not fully informed about the the health issues that go on in the black community. And so it's just good to take a pause and we need to be informed and make sure that we're making the best decision for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated the, the discussion about like, you cannot fix intersex people there. There's nothing to fix. They are who they are. Um, and in, in getting rid of that mindset that you're trying to fix them, it is getting rid of the mindset that like uh, sex is this, you know, binary thing that it is. And even that gender is like this binary thing. It's kind of like we have to expand our mind. It doesn't fit neatly into these boxes or these categories or schemas that we have, you know, 
learned since childhood, but, you know, we're always taking in new information. You know, that is what makes us who we are as humans, like our ability to take in this new information, assimilate that in and make better decisions because our inability to think beyond the binary, it is literally and physically and mentally causing harm to people. I mean, that story, like you said, and even the distrust with the doctors, like the story of saying that someone's organs are cancerous and the parents not being informed and like therefore making a decision that like Saifa said is like continuing to like impact them physically and, you know, probably emotionally and mentally. So it's just kind of like that's that's harmful. We want healthy and happy children, but we harm them when we cannot open our minds um, to, to new possibilities. Um, and if we can't be, get beyond the mindset of trying to fix things that are not even urgent medically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, yeah, no, this was just all eye-opening. And um, I know, you know, like I said, during the interview, you know, I learned a lot, but I'm sure our listeners will will learn a lot. And I and I encourage everyone, all our listeners, to go and click on these links, click on these websites, look at things like the Intersex Justice Project um, and the work that Cypher is doing and others to just get more informed on this. Right? Um, it's it's this is a one of the reasons we created this platform is to you know educate and and shed light on issues that yes we know about that are always hot topics of conversation, but many of these that go under the radar and 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 I think. I think we have to just do our due diligence as a community to make sure that all voices are heard as much as possible. And that way, as a whole, you know, we will progress and, and become a stronger community once we recognize everybody's experiences. Um, so, yeah, I think I just, you know, I just I just I'm just I just felt really um I guess, grateful that Cypher took the time to come and appreciative to come talk with us, but also just, you know, appreciative of just having the opportunity just for myself personally, just to learn more about this and be more informed and not Mm -hmm. kind of walking around with my head in the dark with with these kind of issues, you know? Yeah, there's nothing cute about that, folks. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's not uh, cute or cool to be ignorant. And like, you know, kind of like Dr. Fallon said, it's not like an insult. Like ignorant is... as in not knowing. And in the 21st century with Google at our fingertips, like I feel like there's like little excuse uh, to be ignorant about, you know, certain things. And with BHD, I mean, it's really hard to, if you listening, we, we doing the lessons. We, we yeah. Lessons. yeah. <laughs> we try to give you a lesson every week, every you know, week. so all you gotta do is just press play. <laughs> <laughs> We're not asking for no homework, no notes, no papers. Just press yeah. play and listen as you're doing what you do. Um, but now, again, we just want to thank Cypher for coming out, coming to chat with us. Um, you know, as usual, follow us on social media at BHD Podcast. Visit our website for all our latest content at www.blackandhighlydangerous.com. Email us, bhdpodcast at gmail.com, you know, with topic ideas. If you want to be a guest, again, we're still doing our listener guest episode at the end of every month where you come in and talk to us about current events. So continue to engage with us in that way. And if there's topics or people you want us to reach out to, 
email us, let us know. We always do our due diligence to reach out to these folk and get them on because there's never not uh, not enough voices to talk about. Okay. Um, continue to review, rate us um, on iTunes. Okay, that's important. And as always, share us with your friends, share us with your families, share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.